Today's episode of the Dad Tired Podcast is brought to you by Samaritan Ministries. Samaritan Ministries is a biblical solution to healthcare where hundreds of thousands of Christians across the nation bear one another's medical burdens through prayer and financial support. It's not insurance and there are no network restrictions, which means you choose the doctors, treatments, and hospitals that are right for you. Medical bills are sent to Samaritan Ministries and they notify members to pray and send money directly to you to help pay those bills. It's affordable with a sharing program that could fit your budget and you can join today. Samaritan Ministries is always there to help you choose a quality healthcare provider, to price medical procedures, and 24-7 access to medical professionals by phone or email to get medical advice before you visit the doctor, which is going to save you time and money. When you think about Samaritan Ministries, you think about the verse in Galatians 6.2, which says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you'd like to learn more about this amazing community, you can go to SamaritanMinistries.org slash dadtired. Again, that's SamaritanMinistries.org slash dadtired. Chad, dude, so excited to be hanging out with you, man. Yeah, I've got so many things I want to talk about. So I'm going to try to get out of the way because I just want to listen to you and hear your stories and all the wisdom that you want to share with us. But before we dive into all that, for guys who may not be familiar with you, tell us who you are and what you're up to these days. Yeah. So my name is Chad Robichaud. Uh, I'm a former force reconnaissance Marine, Marine Corps, big in my family. My dad was a Marine and infantry Marine in Vietnam. Both my sons are Marines. I did eight deployments in Afghanistan and came home and struggled with a lot of the things that many of our military warriors struggle with today. You know, uh, anxiety, depression. I was diagnosed with PTSD, dealt with debilitating panic attacks, nearly lost my family. I've been married 26 years now, but I don't know, 15 year mark is when I really dealt with this head on and uh, we filed for divorce and I'm almost divorced. And then uh, I, the kind of bottom of that valley was an attempt to take my life by suicide. Luckily, my wife and some amazing people intervened in my life, got me on the other side of that. The biggest piece of that restoration was uh, my faith. And then on the other side of that, I realized that I wasn't the only one struggling, that I had to really share the solutions that I found with others. And that led me to start Mighty Oaks Foundation. And that was 11 years ago. Since then, we've served over 250,000 active duty troops where I spoke military bases around the world through Mighty Oaks Foundation and uh, run a recovery program for those struggling with the same things I struggle with. And uh, for active duty service members, veterans, spouses, first responders, We've had 4,100 graduates. We do about $5 million a year in programming, all for free to them because of a great foundation that supports Mighty Oaks Foundation. It's been just an incredible last 11 years and uh, written a bunch of books. The books that we've written, we've given about, I think we're right now at about 150,000 books we've given away to troops. My newest one I know we're talking about today is Fight for Us. It's our new McCarthyized Marriage book with Thomas Nelson, and uh, just really talking about the restoration piece of our marriage. And then the latest... If I give you the latest, because you asked what the latest is, yeah. the latest is me um, is starting an organization called Save Our Allies, which we never intended to do. But during my eight deployments, I had uh, I had worked with the interpreter Aziz, and Aziz and I, because I was in special operations, I was AFO, really didn't ever live, live on a base. I lived with Aziz and his family, and the two of us went out and did all the four clandestine logistics for uh, for our, our assault squadron. You know, he saved my life multiple times. We didn't just become partners; we became you know, brothers. And I love this guy. And he saved me, he saved my life. And, and I'm here today because of him. And he was not going to get out with the bro- very broken immigration system that we have for, inter- for the interpreters. And so I made a decision when President Biden announced the withdrawal to go get my friend and his wife and six kids 
And I, I rallied up uh, about 12 of my team, former teammates and, and friends in the special operations community. As we were preparing to go, we realized that other people were, were struck, stuck there as well, particularly this group of 3,500 orphans. And we made a decision to not just get Aziz and his family, but get other people. We were able to solicit the support of the UAE government, who gave us two C-17 planes and a humanitarian center and a lot of resources. In a 10-day period at Hkaya Airport, after the dust kind of settled and we got Aziz and his family out, I mean, we had 24-7 days, so we didn't even, we were just getting as many Americans interpreters, their families, women that are vulnerable, children, Christians that are being persecuted. We got as many people out as we can by going out uh, off, the, off the airport and rat lining them back in. We ended up getting 12,000 people out. Wow. Since then, we got another 5,000. So we got 17,000 out total. We've been back. I've been back several times. Uh, probably the most significant one was myself and active duty uh, Marine named Dennis went into uh, and cross borders to build rat lines across borders to get people so people could move across borders to get out. And so currently right now, as we're recording this, we're moving 200 girls that are very vulnerable in Taliban historia. Then we're moving 200 girls out. So, yeah, so that's been my latest thing and, uh, you know, still doing uh, Mighty Oaks, but that's kind of what is going on in my world right now and, and why I've been so busy. And I'm glad you've been patient with me to do this podcast because, uh, I'm, I'm really dealing a lot with getting these girls out this week. So. Mm. Well, bro, you're doing a good work, man. And first, just thank you for your service to our country. And thank you for your willingness to lay down your life in, in so many ways. I feel the need to pray for those girls right now. Yeah, as yeah, Let me just pray for them. Lord, we pray that, that you, as uh, you know, all the details of what's happening, but your little girls are making their way to safety. And God, I pray that you would first give them a deep sense of peace by your Holy Spirit, that they would know that you are with them. And God, I pray that you would protect them. God, that I pray that you would give your favor and blessing upon them, that they would arrive to safety. And God, that you would set them aside for your kingdom and your good work, Lord, that you would capture their hearts, Lord. You wouldn't just save them physically, but you would save them spiritually, God, that you would capture their hearts, that they would fall in love with you, that they would learn to love and know you as provider, as the one who, the father who looks after them and takes care of them. But God, we pray for all the logistical stuff that's happening right now as we speak, that you would be over all of that and show your favor on it. It's in your, your name we pray, Lord. Amen. 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 Dang, man. There's a lot of stuff there that I, I'd love to unpack. I'm going to tell a really short story and you're going to be like, dude, why are you saying this? This has nothing. What are you talking about? But I promise it, it will tie back to our conversation. So my wife and I were driving the other day and we were having this conversation about a scale of masculinity. Like what's the, like the manliest man you can think of. And like, anyway, what I was trying to get at was like, I was trying to get to the question, Hey, where do you think I am on that scale? (laughs) That's where we were trying. I was trying to go. And so then she said, well, we have to define like, what is masculinity? Who's the hundred? Who's the zero. So her zero of like on the masculine scale, what she said was Kim Kardashian was just like no masculinity, all woman, all like very feminine. And I said, well, what's your hundred? And she paused because it was a little, I trapped her a little bit. You know, I'm asking my wife to tell me who's the manliest man she could think of. And she said, uh, after much hesitation, she said, Bruce Willis from Armageddon. <laughs> that was her, like the manliest guy, which she didn't know that I remembered about 10 years ago. I remember her telling me that was her like celebrity crush. So just happens to be that her manliest person. Anyway, I say all that and I won't tell you what number she gave me, but I'll, I, <laughs> I will say as I read through your bio, I'm like, dang, I think we need to replace Bruce Willis and get Chad in there. I'm like, dude, bro, you're like the epitome of just masculine man. You, you're an MMA champion. I'm a big MMA fan. Got some friends that fight in the UFC. You've served, you've given so much, you've showed bravery, 
But as I look at your bio and your story, somebody just read that. If somebody just read your bio and even just heard everything you just shared, you'd be like, dang, this dude's got it together. He's a man. You know, he's got it figured out. But it like it took a major toll on you and specifically your marriage. And so I'd love to just hear like you stepped into some hard things. A lot of dudes would look at you and be like, bro, this guy's a man. But internally, you've deeply struggled. And I'd love for you just to kind of unveil that a little bit, like pull the curtain back a little bit and just tell us how were you struggling as a man personally? And then how did that impact your marriage? Yeah. Well, first of all, like my bio, even I read my bio and I'm like, holy cow, I got to do a lot of stuff. But when, when, uh, sometimes I get insecure when I hear people read my bio, because what I see like, and we're all like a bit insecure and, and uh, self-conscious. What I hear when I hear people read my bio and all the, the stuff that I've got to do, I just see a very insecure person mm. that, was, uh, that was chasing a lot of accolades for self-fulfillment. So like there was a, just a, a season in my life and even, even something I still struggle with today that where I would achieve something to try to prove something to someone else or myself. And then once I achieved that and I thought that would be the marker of where like I'm successful now, I've arrived, it wasn't fulfilling. So it's what's the next thing. Right. I, I wanted to be a Marine. I became a Marine and I wanted to be a recon Marine. And then I wanted to, once I became a recon Marine, I wanted to go to Force Recon. And then it was every school I had to get, I had to get every school. I had to become a, you know, a free fall parachutist and a combat diver and, and a McQuist instructor and all, every, everything I was achieving, but it was never enough. And I wanted to do more and more and more. And then mm-hmm. I was at Force Recon and I'm like, well, the, where's the top unit I get to is, you know, JSOC. I want to serve with a, you know, dev group or, or Delta force and be one of the few Marines that get to go there. And so I tried out for JSOC and I got accepted there and got on these missions. And then the whole time it just was never, it never was enough and never filled. And even as an athlete, you know, you win a fight and then what's the next biggest fight I could win. You win a title, what's the next biggest title you could win. And, and so my whole life has, has really been that. And those aren't bad things, but they're bad things when you're trying to have your identity tied to it. Yeah. When you're trying to fulfill those things for the wrong reasons they're never going to satisfy. And so when I hear someone go through my bio, I see someone that was a very discontent person hmm. that was always seeking accolades for, again, I, I really care what other people thought a lot of times. It was like a lot of times for me because I just felt insecure and insignificant and not enough. And so I had to do more, not to give the spoiler, but I'll just go right to it. I never found, until I, found, I had Christ in my life, I never found that contentment. But once I did, find Christ in my life, my identity shifted to these jobs and these accolades and these achievements to my identity, not being tied to that, but my identity being tied to a Christ follower and being a son of God. That's when my identity shifted. And then once that my identity shifted into that, I could still do those things, but I wasn't bound by them. And why that's very important to say is because I had worked my whole life to make it to that JSOC task force and be in Afghanistan and do that job as AFO. I worked my whole life to do that. And it became my entire identity. You know, good, good. Things go bad. We had a lot of, we had hundreds of missions that would say extreme success. But in those times when things started to deteriorate, I first was dealing with a tremendous amount of anger that I brought home to my wife and my children. I'd be in Afghanistan. I felt like that anger, frustration, intensity worked well there. But then when I'd be home 24 hours later, then I was still this angry, intense guy. And I couldn't flip that off because my identity was tied to being that person. I have to be this person. I have to be violent. I have to be mean. I have to be like callous and I can't uh, have this emotion. So, and it, it, there's a probably a mental side of it. There's a physiological side of it as well that I was dealing with not be able to feel the emotion because your body in survival mode is shutting that emotion off so you can do the job that I was doing. 
but I come home and, and now I'm this tyrant to my wife and kids. And it's a shame mm. to say, but it's just true. I was, I would, you know, yell at them and, and slam doors and break things and, and yell at my wife and children like I was a Marine Corps drill instructor and uh, just throw temper tantrums like a, like a 15 year old child not getting it his way. That obviously creates an environment in your home that's not a happy place for your wife and children. Probably not a safe place, not, although I never physically abused them, but I, I do believe it's probably not a safe place for them because I was so volatile. And uh, eventually that, you know, by not addressing those things, it just got, got worse because I, my pride wouldn't let me address them. Cause I'm like, I have to be this way. This is who I am right now. This is like, I have to be like this person right now. And I could maybe clean this up later. I mean, one time I was coming home from my, my daughter's birthday and my daughter's like, if anybody's listening, has daughters. And I, I never even knew those such things as a half birthday until I had a daughter, <laughs> a self-proclaimed princess. And Coming home for a birthday was like a big deal because she actually moved to birthday for me being being home dad being home from mm-hmm. Afghanistan and and that was a big deal for her because she wants to celebrate on her day and mm-hmm. and so but she was so excited and she's uh she had her birthday cake and her party and but she's very opinionated and she didn't like the icing on her cake like something mm-hmm. super simple and when she said that I just lost my mind and flipped out and I grabbed my little girl's birthday cake and I picked up her cake and threw it against the wall wow. and, and destroyed my little girl's birthday and I remember thinking in that moment like knowing I was wrong knowing I was out of control. But like when I would go in those moments, like in out of control like that, I would, if I would admit, if I would stop, then it was like an admission of guilt. So I would like double down and, and try to justify my behavior instead yeah. of backing down. So once I recognized that I was <clears throat> starting to behave that way and was so out of control, I just thought right now at this point in my life, my wife's a great mom. She's a great dad. She's a great husband. She's a great wife. She takes care of everything. I need to do this job. Because uh, this job's so important right now, and I can put all this together later. So I'm just going to distance myself and stay as busy as I could. So every school I could go to, every deployment I get on, I just stay as busy as I could. You know, and you don't have to be in the military to do that, by the way. Uh, right. And do that all the time in whatever job they do, and just prolong because whatever they're doing is so important that your family comes second. And uh, and that's what I did. You know, what I was doing in my mind, I said was more important than my than wife and kids. I'm Afghanistan because the human life was more important than my wife and kids. And the truth is it wasn't because of my foundation of my family wasn't in place then I couldn't have the longevity to serve those people in Afghanistan. And that's ultimately what happened. That, that anger and anxiety being unchecked, that behavior being unchecked and manifesting in these physiological symptoms mm. that, you know, my arms would go numb, my face would go numb. My throat felt like I was swelling shut. Wow. I feel like I had a thousand pound weight on my chest. There's just, you know, signs of panic attacks and, and from anxiety and depression, extreme anxiety. And I didn't want to say anything to the people I worked with because I knew, you know, I was in this little special operations group that would, those guys would think I was weak because I would have thought the same thing of, of them. And, uh, and I would have been peered out of my job or, you know, viewed poorly. And, and if I went to mental health, I thought I would lose my, my security clearance at a top secret SCI security clearance. So I thought going to mental health would lose my clearance. And so I didn't get the help I needed. I pushed it down and tried to just grind through it. And the symptoms got worse. I had these moments I was in Afghanistan where I had what's called disassociation, where your mind feels like it separates from your body and you can almost see yourself like in a bird's eye view, like playing a video game. We ended up having a moment where we, where we lost 12 guys, uh, mm. two Americans and 10 Afghans and that worked for me. And you may not think it's a big of a deal to lose Afghans to US team members. But to me, these guys were my brothers. Like I lived in their homes. I played soccer with their kids. They ate dinner with their families. Like I love these guys. And I would have died for them and they would have died for me. And in fact, they, I, they did die for me. And, and if I was hanging on by a thread in that moment, that thread was broken. And I really began to spiral 
I had one more operation I did after that. And a lot of other things happened in between some very terrible things. You know, it's some, they drove a vehicle bomb into my house and it had some, some, uh, compromise with the foreign intelligence agency. It was some really bad things happening. And there's one more operation I did. I, I came like out of a fog and I, and I recognized that I had this like kind of moment of clarity. And I said, man, I'm, I am not only put myself in danger, but I'm putting other people in danger as well. Cause I'm not mentally here. Mm-hmm. I'm not making wise decisions. And so I finally, in fear of me, not only getting myself killed, but getting other people killed, I, I spoke up and said something. I was brought home. I was diagnosed with PTSD. And in that, in that moment, my life really hit a downward spiral even further. And, and it was a really weird trajectory because of kind of contrasting trajectory. Because when I first got home and I got diagnosed with PTSD, they put me on a lot of medication that made me feel like I was either going to die mm-hmm. or it made me feel like I was a zombie. And I mean, and I, and the level of panic attacks I was in is, you know, people talk about panic attacks all the time. Like I hear people say, like, I was in a traffic and had a panic attack, not minimizing that, but that's not what I'm talking about. Like, like when I would have a panic attack, I was a thousand percent convinced, like I'm, I'm going to die right now. Like I need to go to the emergency room. I'm having a heart attack. I'm having a stroke. Jeez. Like uh, <clears throat> imagine like drowning and you're chained up bottom of a swimming pool and how desperate would you be for one breath of air, but you never die. Like that you're in that level of panic 24 seven. And on top of that, I was totally ashamed. Because I, I was embarrassed. Like I felt like I had worked my whole life to make it to that task force and do that job. And now I in the game winning play, like I failed. So I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. And so my wife and my counselor tried to get me to do something that would maybe offset the medication to get me engaged mentally. And and they talked me into getting on the mats and doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is I'd say I did it since I was little, but I'm still little. I'm I'm a short guy, I'm like five foot four. So it's something I did my whole life. I did martial arts my whole life. I was already a professional MMA fighter. I was doing it on the side in the military. I was undefeated, so I was pretty good at it. And so when I got on those mats the first time and started training, I felt like I found a cure because it's a place that you go and you can unplug and you have to be present, like mentally present. Mm-hmm. You, you can't think about Afghanistan while you're grappling because your buddy's going to beat you up. And so that mental, that, that being forced to be mentally present was actually very healthy for me. And it's a very good therapy for people to get well. And when I realized that, I'm like, man, if I just stay in these mats 24 seven, this is what I need, hmm. you know, and there's lots of things you can do to get better. And, uh, and that's a physical outlets are great, but it's not the sole source. If it becomes a sole source, then it's just a crutch. Hmm. And uh, it's like somebody climbing in a bottle of alcohol or, or taking pills to numb themselves. You're not actually getting better. You're just finding a way to hide from it. And uh, I love jujitsu, by the way. I still, I have a fourth degree black belt in the Carlson Gracie. I still train every day, every day I can. And, uh, and being in ministry is extremely stressful, especially for veterans. So when I have a bad day at the office, I go to a gym and I find like some 20 year old stud and I choke him out. So <laughs> I, lo- I love jujitsu, but I took something good for me, like a medicine and, uh, and you can abuse a medicine, hmm. right? I took something good for me, like a medicine and I abused it. I didn't get healthy. That's this kind of contradicting trajectory I was talking about was my professional life was like skyrocketing because I started winning more fights. I won a world title. I was ranked number six in the world as a flyweight professionally. But my personal life was like in a downward trajectory at the same time. And so mm-hmm. I was still this angry tyrant to my family. I was still having panic attacks. I just wasn't healthy, but I had this outward success, which I created an environment where everybody told me what I wanted to hear and no one told me what I needed to hear. I pretty much mm-hmm. pushed accountability out of my life because as an athlete, you can do kind of, you know, as a successful athlete, owned a, owned a gym. I had like a thousand students. People kind of lifted me up and, and it wasn't a healthy place to be. So the result that ended up me and my wife being just totally separate in our own home, marriage was deteriorating. I ended up 
uh, I'd say most nights of sleeping at a friend's house or the gym or my kid's bedroom. The loneliest place my wife and I are say we've ever been is in our own beds with our back turned towards each other and just a dead marriage. Mm. And it didn't take long for me being an athlete and all these girls around. There's lots of girls around when you're in sports and fighting on television to walk out of our marriage into relationships with other women end up in a full-blown affair. And when my wife found out, honestly, I still had no empathy. And so I really didn't care. I just couldn't feel that emotion. I remember like me and my wife fighting and she's crying and I'm like sitting there like, what's wrong with me? I don't even feel wow. bad. Like my wife, I'm screaming at my wife, making her cry and I don't even feel bad about it. Like what's something's definitely wrong with me. But, uh, and I, I thought what was wrong with me is that I didn't love her. Uh, I, I didn't realize that I just had this issue of no compassion, no empathy. And so I didn't care if she found out what happened. And when she did, when it all came to light and found out that I was seeing in this affair, we just sat down and said, okay, well, the solution is we're just going to get divorced. You know, we're not going to, there's no reason to work through this. We don't love each other. We just get divorced. And we sold our home. We filed for divorce. We moved into two separate apartments uh, 12, with 12 month leases. So we were pretty committed. My wife and I had two very different reactions. My wife wanted to be surrounded by quality people that wouldn't be a toxic environment. So she, she switched churches because we were a part, we were a part of this big church before. And, you know, I, I had no relationship with God. I would just go there to really control my family. You know, mm-hmm. they, my wife's going to be a good Christian woman and be loyal and faithful. And my kids would go to Sunday school, but you know, I was not going to engage with uh, men in that church because I really viewed Christianity as a, a weak mm-hmm. kind of thing. I felt like masculinity and Christianity couldn't, couldn't coexist two mm-hmm. very different things. And, uh, and obviously I was misled by that and felt like you know, it was a point in Afghanistan where I felt like I had to choose between person of faith and person of masculinity and being a warrior and which was being a warrior. And I could do that faith thing when I get older. And I believe that decision left a giant hole inside of my heart that obviously I feel with rape, rage and hate and anger and bitterness and, and, uh, and that darkness that took over me. And, and now, you know, now we're at this point where we're separated. And so I separate myself from this big church we're going to, cause I had no relationship there. I had a relationship with God. My wife ended up going to a, a, a smaller church. Not, it was still a pretty big church, but it had like really good focused community groups and stuff like that. And that's where she went. And, uh, and she surrounded myself by herself by really positive people. And they really encouraged her, even though our marriage might be over, to be praying for me. And she prayed for me, even though I was betraying her in this most you know, horrific way that a husband could betray their, their spouse. And, and she would go in the church, not just on Sundays, but during the days of the week, and, and she'd pray. And uh, people have shown me where she prayed against this wall, and they said she would collapse crying, praying for me. And, and uh, she said she would pray, you know, God, let me see Chad the way you see Chad. Let me love Chad the way you love Chad. Let me forgive Chad the way you forgave Chad. And that's what she was praying for me. And meanwhile, I'm like total opposite direction. I signed my 12-month lease in my apartment. Within like, <laughs> within like two days, I had it totally decorated, like full-on bachelor pad. It's disgusting for me to say, but no family pictures on the wall. I had in my closet, I had a walk-in closet and I had like all my family pictures kind of lined up on the wall in there mm-hmm. uh, on my shelf. And, you know, I had obviously girls coming over. I didn't want my family pictures to be out. So it's really disgusting to admit that, but it's just the reality of where it was. And I had this big fight. I signed this big fight for Strike Force, which is the number two show in the world at the time. UFC owned it. I was fighting in the Toyota Center in Houston, Texas on Showtime, fighting this really big uh, upcoming kid. And uh, I was undefeated. And, and everybody was touting this kid. And so it's kind of like, I wouldn't, obviously it wasn't a good state of mind. And so I just really wanted to prove to everybody that I could strike with this kid because he was a striker and I was a grappler. I had won all of my fights, hundred percent of my wins were by submission hmm. at that time. I had never not finished a fight by submission. 
And so I remember fighting in Toyota Center and me and Humberto de Leon, like literally every round, me standing up trying to strike with them, we knocked each other down. If you're like a fan, fight fan, it's like a Rocky fight. Like he knocked me down, I knocked him down. It was back and forth. And, and, and this is my first time I made it to decision. And I remember thinking like, I don't even remember what happened because I've been punched in the head so many times. I don't know if I won or lost. And one judge called it for Humberto. The next judge called it for me. I'm like, man, I'm going to lose a split decision. And then the third judge called it for me. I remember all the pressure coming off and like the excitement of winning a fight like that and my hands raised. And when you're in a place like get 10,000 people in there and they're all cheering, it's kind of deafening. But in that moment, like I had like this, I don't know if any of you listening ever had this moment before, but it was like a kind of time standstill moment. Like everything mm-hmm. kind of got quiet, mm-hmm. probably just reflecting. And I thought like all these 10,000 people here, not one of them is Kathy. And she had always been at my mm-hmm. bicycle board. It was just a reality that she wasn't there. And I just fought so hard for this stupid win on my record. And I wasn't fighting for my family. And, and my family was devastated. And so uh, I probably walked out of that cage with my head held low that, that day and went home to my apartment and really started thinking. And uh, my mind's thinking, and I'm thinking of all the people in my life that are idiots, that I blame for everything, right? My dad, because I had this just terrible childhood. And, and then people in the military, my wife were never understanding, like everyone's an idiot. That was my mentality. And but the common denominator was me. Like I was the problem. And so this thought came over me that maybe my family would be sad without me, but they would be better off. Uh, maybe they'd be sad, but they'd be better, better off. And unfortunately, that, that same thought finds a home in the hearts of over 20 veterans every single day and, and many more outside the veteran community. And that same hopeless thought just, you know, of maybe my family would be sad without me, but they would be better off. And I decided to take my life. And I wasn't going to tell people or reach out for help or give little signs. I was going to do it and kind of kept it in my own little silo, prepare things. And then I, I would sit in my closet in that apartment and I put those family pictures on the floor around me and stare at them and try to build up the courage to pull that trigger. I had a Glock 22 pistol. I put the pistol to my head and try to have the courage to, to pull that trigger. Obviously, I know what, what's going to happen. I know what the gun's going to do. And I think it was divine because every time I put that gun to my head, I'd have this vision, a thought of how it was going to play out, like who's going to find me. Uh, somebody's going to hear a gunshot. You're going to show up missing any apartment complex, maybe no one finds you, you're going to start smelling. Like so, someone's going to find you. And, and uh, it might sound morbid to say that, but it's just true. Like it's going to happen. And, uh, but the only other person that had a key to my apartment at the time was my oldest son, Hunter. He was 13 at the time. And I'm like, and, and it would be enough to pump the brakes thinking I couldn't let my son be part of finding me that way. And so that was, that was enough to stop me in that moment. But I was in such a dark place that the next day I'd be back at it again. And there was one morning uh, my, my wife, I came over and I was in that closet with my pistol in my hand and her timing was, you know, timing was to intervene was save me, but she had knocked on my door and I wasn't going to answer it because, you know, I was in a, literally had the pistol in my hand. But when I heard her voice, I kind of panicked. I like hid that pistol under a blanket, like a little kid getting caught doing something wrong because I don't know if I was ashamed or something. I mean, she would have never came in my closet and found that pistol, but uh, because of her, her voice, I just panicked and I hit it, I went to the door. And I remember being, I was, I was so mad. I was so mad that she had came and interrupted me trying to kill myself, which mm-hmm. sounds crazy, but I was just so angry. I was like, what are you doing here? Like, why are you here? Like, you don't belong here. And I'm just yelling at her. And, and uh, she's not a very calm person either when, when arguments <laughs> happen. But in this moment, she was like, she's super calm. She's like, and she asked me a question that radically changed my life and, and, and saved my life. She said, Chad, how can you do everything you did in the military? She saw me, we met when we were 17 and 18. So she saw me become a recon Marine and go to these schools and training and, the discipline it took to do my job and the deployments and, and training for MMA fights and cutting weight and the amount of discipline it takes. She saw all this discipline in my life. And she's like, how could you do all of that? And when it comes to your family, 
you'll quit. Mm. And uh, I don't know about everybody listening here, but to me, as a man, there's no more soul cutting word than to be called a quitter. And she was absolutely right. I've been successful at professional things in my life. All those things you mentioned about in my resume, you know, I've been you know, super successful. I'm a, I'm a pretty driven guy and I'm pretty, pretty committed guy. And when I make a goal to do something professionally, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to see it through. That's just who I am. And, uh, but when it came to the most important things, being a husband, being a father, being a young 17-year-old kid that raised his hand at one point and said, I'm going to do something important in my life. All those things that are the most foundationally important things in my life, she was right. I had quit at. I had failed at. That was a tough pill to swallow in that moment. But I recognized that she was right and I had to make a change. I'm a pretty radical decision maker. And so in that moment, I decided kind of all in or all out person. I'm going to fix this. Like, I'm going to take that same work ethic and discipline and character that she was talking about professionally. I'm going to put it in my personal life. I'm going to fix this. And it had nothing to do with God. had nothing to do with faith. But the one thing I knew was that I had no accountability because of the environment I created. And I knew I couldn't do it alone. And I knew I couldn't do it with those people I'd surrounded myself by. So I asked my wife, is there someone at this church you're going to, some man that could help hold me accountable to this? I just wanted someone out of my circle. I didn't care if it was a church or anything. And she called the church and a man on call that was named Steve Toth. He wasn't a pastor. He was elder of the church. And he was never, he wasn't in the military. He wasn't an MMA fighter. He was just a small business owner. At the time, now he's a state, Texas state legislator. At the time, uh, Steve was just a small business owner. And he agreed to meet with me. And we met at a Starbucks coffee shop. And while I say he didn't have all those other gifts, that he had one gift that was perfect to help me. Steve has ADD, like really bad. And why is a gift is, I mean, really bad. Like I still go to lunch with him right now and he doesn't walk to his car. He like, when he gets out, he like grabs his keys and runs across the parking lot to his car because walking's a waste of time. Like he's a very impatient wow. guy and he's like really ADD. Like the reason that was a gift for me is because I was so manipulative. Like when I met him at Starbucks, I was really trying to use him to win my wife back. Cause now, now that's my next goal. I have mm. to win my wife back. Mm. So I written a, a five paragraph order, like a military operational order. If I was going to fix my life and it was really good and I was really proud of it. And I, I smugly slid it over to him. Like, Hey, check this out. I have a plan. You're going to basically show it to my wife. Cause you're going to help me convince her that I'm going to do the right thing. And he didn't even read it. He put his hand on the paper and slid it back over to me and told me I was going to fail. I remember my reaction was like, I was, I was kind of ticked. I'm like, who is this jerk? Like, I put all this work into this and you're not even going to look at it and tell me I'm going to fail. You know, pretty arrogant of me because he was there to help me, but I'm like using him. And, and I'm never forget his words. He tapped on that paper and he said, this plan doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God. I'm not going to waste your time. I'm not going to let you waste mine. Mm. And at that point I had pretty much tried everything. I had been on the pills and medication. I've been through VA programs and counseling programs, cognitive and, and prolonged exposure therapy and all these different things. I had professional success as financially, as athlete, from accolades, all these things. But some of those things were good. Some of those things were bad. But none of those things really worked to change my situation. And out of this moment, we have a saying at Mighty Oaks Foundation, if what you're doing isn't working, then why not try something different? Hmm. It was time for me to try something different. I knew that the one chink in my armor all that time had been that decision I made to not completely surrender my life to God, to not have that strong spiritual pillar in my life to, to say that I have to choose between masculinity and Christianity. I knew that was a weak point in my life and a point that I never ventured into because of my view of uh, Christian men being weak, my view of, uh, of maybe being a skeptic because I didn't have all the answers and I was too lazy to search out and discover the answers. And so I, I kind of recklessly told Steve, you know, hey, I tried everything, nothing else worked. Why not? Like, and I didn't really know what it meant to be at the time, 
to surrender my life to Christ. But Steve led me in, a, in, in surrendering my life to Christ. And beyond that decision, he mentored me for an entire year in biblical living. Wow. What that really meant for me was, uh, and we know this is discipleship, you know, what that really meant for me was understanding how to not just be a Christian and surrender my life to Christ, but how to live as a Christian. And that was game changing for me, how to practically apply Christian biblical principles into my everyday life. Did it mean that I'm not going to have anxiety anymore? Of course not. I lost, I buried 15 friends. Like I have some a past, I have, you know, childhood trauma. I have like all of that. We had marriage issues, obviously that we had to go through. There's going to be stress. There's going to be anxiety. There's going to be hardships. There's going to be panic attacks again, maybe like all these things I'm still going to face, but how I respond to them by now knowing biblical principles to respond to them and make different choices was going to be the, all the change in the world. And it sounds cliche to say this, but looking back at my situation, the reason I ended up in that closet with a pistol in my hand wasn't because of those things, all those bad things that happened to me. And I just shared some of them with you. What led me to be in that closet with a pistol in my hand were the choices I made in response to those things. Again, it's cliche as it may sound. I didn't have to let my past define my future. I could choose a different future moving forward. And applying these biblical principles intentionally reading, discovering, reading the Bible, like reading books on biblical living and being mentored by Steve, that gave me a kind of blueprint of how to recalibrate my life, to live the life the way God intended me to live. And by intentionally doing that in my life, the results proved to be manifesting restoration into my marriage, into my family, restoration into my own brokenness with PTSD. It manifested in me finding hope for the first time in a very long time. Mm -hmm. I would say probably in my whole life. And ultimately finding what I sought in my whole life. And that's purpose. If you want to know why veterans kill themselves, it's not because of what they've seen or did. Uh, it's because they had a clear purpose, a mission, their clear mission, and they felt important and valuable. And then one day they woke up and they felt like that was gone. They had no purpose anymore. You know, we were created that purpose. And especially as men, we have to have purpose in our lives. And when we feel like we lost that, we feel like we have no will to live anymore, whether it's suicide or just kind of emptiness or, or passionless or purposeless. You know, Mark Twain says it like this in one of my favorite quotes. He says the two most important days in a person's life are the day that they're born and the day that they find out why. And when Steve Toth introduced me to life that I believe God created me to live, I discovered the why. And it was in my life to, at that point in my life, at this season of my life, to share what I discovered with others. I wasn't the only one dealing with this. 22 veterans a day were taking their life. 80% of veterans were divorcing. People outside the military were dealing with marriage struggles and, and depression and lack of purpose and struggles with masculinity and understanding how to live manly lives and facing young men facing that same question I face. Do I have to be, should I be a man or should I be a Christian? Like not being able to reconcile those two things and understanding the strongest men in the world, men of God. I had the answers to this now. It's like if I was dying of cancer and Steve Till gave me the cure, I couldn't keep that to myself. Like I had to mm. share it with other people. I felt obligated to. And so it quickly manifested in a burden that God put in my heart to share it with others, particularly at that time with other veterans that resulted in the founding of Mighty Oaks Foundation. And, and like I said, since then, I've been able to speak to 250,000 troops around the world at bases around the world and talk about spiritual resiliency. Next weekend, I'll be at Marine Corps boot camp. I've been there every quarter for the last seven years now and speak to these young, mm. brand new Marine Corps recruits on spiritual resiliency, tell them things that the chaplains are not allowed to tell them from a policy standpoint and be able to tell them how they don't have to choose. From a force recon Marine who's been to Afghanistan eight times and and done everything they're probably aspiring to do as a warrior, you don't have to choose between being tough and being a Christian because there's no one tougher in the battlefield of life or combat than a man of God. And I'm able to tell them that in, a, in the Marine Corps lesson, we give them this book on spiritual resiliency. And so I, I get to do that now. And it's just amazing that I, I get to do this. And then 
all these guys that are struggling, just like I did, we get to bring them to our legacy program and help them recalibrate their lives with the lives that they're in, intended to live. And not just Christians too, by the way. In fact, we just had an event last night and one of our, one of our recent graduates came there as atheists, which about half of our people come to us either mad at God or not claiming to be Christians and you know, find their relationship with God and the life they were created to live through, through the program. And so all this that I went through, you know, as the Bible says, and as the Bible clearly says in Romans and different, different parts of the Bible, that God doesn't put us through struggles. He doesn't torment us to put us through these things, but sometimes he'll allow us to go through things so that he can use them for his glory and his will. And I believe, you know, right now he took, well, as one of my friends, Brandon say, my mess <laughs> and made it his message to be able to help others that are facing the same things I faced to be able to move forward. Man. Uh, well, I was, I'm glad this is audio only because I was crying during your, uh, as you were sharing your story. And, but dude, I know you're, you're busy, you're doing so many things. So, and you, you squeeze this time in for us, which I'm so grateful for. I just, if we could end with two quick questions, one is for the guy who's listening right now, I talk to my son about this a lot and we talk about what does it mean to be a man who is fit? Like, and I ask him, how do you be a holistic man that's fit? And we, and he can tell you, you know, to be spiritually fit, to be emotionally fit, to be spiritually fit. And so we're talking about, and I love what stuck out to me is when you said that, you know, I could, I'm a strong, capable, brave guy, but I'm going home and I'm throwing my daughter's cake, you know, at the wall. And so you, you've mastered one area of fitness, but the other, these other areas of fitness were, were failing. And I think that's true for a lot of men, myself, a lot of guys listening feel like I've got one area in my life. Maybe I'm crushing at work because I feel like I'm good at that, but I'm I'm failing at these other areas. I'm not where I want to be or where I feel like God wants me to be. I guess, what would you say to that guy? That'd be my first question. What would you say to that guy? There's two contrasts to that, right? Because you can go one end of the spectrum or the other. You can be a really tough, bravado, masculine dude, but weak because you're spiritually weak. Or you can be a really strong, spiritually solid guy, but you'll get no respect from any, any men in the, in the world because you're a weak human being, physically, emotionally, professionally. And so- and that's just a reality. People could not like that. Christians listening to this could not like that. But the reality is what kept me away from God is because I looked at the church and I've seen a bunch of weak dudes that I'm like, I don't want to hang around with that dude. That dude's a freaking dark. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, I'm not going to play softball in the church on the church softball team is a bunch of guys that I don't relate to. Like, that's just yeah. not me. And it's harsh to say that. And I don't mean to be mean by saying that. But if you want to know why young kids grow up in the church when their their parents force them to go to Sunday school. And then at 70% rate, they walk away from the church when they become men is because they don't have any men that they attracted to or aspire to in the church. So Christian men need to be holistic as well. We can't just tell uh, non-Christian people they need to be holistic and add God in their lives when in the church, you have God in your life, but you're weak everywhere else. And so in the military, we teach the pillars of resiliency. There's four pillars of resiliency and uh, mind, body, spirit, and social. So when I go speak at Marine Corps Bootcamp next weekend, I'm going to talk about those four pillars, being mentally tough, having a strong mind, having wisdom, motivation, passion, doing everything you can to be motivated daily and inspired, you know, inspired mentally and uh, have as much wisdom as you can put in godly wisdom and professional wisdom, whatever occupation you're doing or, and then body, like physically being physically tough, not trying to assault anyone, but I have a hard time taking lessons of discipline from a 500 pound pastor. Like, I mean, you can talk tell to me about godly discipline and you're going to go to the, the all you can eat Chinese buffet after, and you're probably going to live, die at 50 years old and not live the life that God intended you. 
have some physical discipline in your life, have some personal discipline and take care of your body. God's given you one body is to protect yourself, to protect your family, to be healthy and be able to go and spread the gospel. To, I mean, some people can't, you can't walk, you can barely walk any further into your refrigerator, but now you're supposed to share the gospel to the corners of the earth. Take care of yourself. Take care of the body that God gave you and cherish it. Uh, so mind and body and socially, you can't always pick who you have around you in your life. You can't pick your family. You can't pick your coworkers, but you can pick who you let speak into your life and who you surround mm-hmm. yourself by. So that's a very important pillar. And then a spiritual pillar. When I went to Afghanistan the first time, I had three of those, those pillars. I was tough mentally. I was tough physically. Socially, I was surrounded by the best people in my profession, but I didn't have that spiritual pillar. And it was by choice. I didn't want it because I thought it was because I misunderstood it and didn't understand the strength of it. I had three of those and a chink in my armor was my spiritual pillar. And that chink in my, one chink in my armor almost cost me everything. It mm. almost cost me my marriage. It almost cost me my kids. It almost cost me my life and my eternity. I was missing those four pillars. Mm. I just got back from Afghanistan going, going to do these rescues. And I'm a little bit older now. It had been 14 years since I've been in Afghanistan. My mind is not as sharp as it used to be. I hadn't done that job in a long time. My body certainly isn't where it used to be. Although I try to take care of myself at 46 as best as I can. I try to take my you know, physical health and my mental health very seriously. And socially, you know, went back there with one other teammate. I didn't have the full support of the military. But the one pillar I did have that I didn't have the first time was the spiritual pillar. Mm. And it ended up being in that, in that operation, the one that I needed. And to walk away, walk back off that dirt in Afghanistan that I never thought I'd step on again, walk off the dirt in Afghanistan and be mentally and whole again. And I think as Christians, and I think the majority of your listeners are Christians, I think as Christians, you need to do an honest evaluation of yourself. And if, you, if I offended you with what I'm saying, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry, because I, I think it's very important that we have to be honest with ourselves and, and evaluate ourselves in these four pillars. And it's the same question I ask to, to non-believers when I go talk to the military. Inventory your life. Be honest with yourself. Am I where I need to be mentally? Am I pouring knowledge into my brain, the right kind of knowledge into my brain every day? Am I motivated? How can I motivate myself to, to be a more motivated person, a more passionate person? Am I physically where I need to be? Do I need to cut out smoking or drinking or eating my eating habits or physically you know, get more physically fit? I'm not saying you need to be David Groggins, or, but be the best you could be in your health. And then, uh, you know, socially, am I choosing the right people to surround myself by to let speak into my life? And then spiritually, that spiritual pillar, even as a Christian, it's my spiritual foundation where it needs to be. Am I where I need to be with mm. God? The answer to that spiritual foundation, to me, that question is always going to be a no, because we don't have enough years in, on earth to be able to get to where we need to be spiritually. Mm. Uh, that's a quest for eternity. So but we do everything we can in this life. That's my answer, my long answer to that question. That's a good answer, man. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the challenge. We'll just end with this last question because in the, you mentioned you're, you just got back from Afghanistan, bringing a lot of these people out kind of just on a current events note, that news cycle gets passed quickly. So we don't hear about it a lot. We don't hear about what's going on. Do you know what the latest is in Afghanistan? Uh, can you give us any kind of update on that? Yeah. Uh, you know, that news cycle was intentionally, <laughs> was intentionally yeah. shut down. Because Absolutely. Of- yeah. You're showing a political show, but um, obviously the current administration does not want this. It's a terrible situation. It makes people look bad. It's been passed over. And the truth is, regardless of what the news says and regardless of political ideologies or beliefs, there are still hundreds, if not thousands of Americans still there. And NGOs, uh, meaning non-government organizations, nonprofits are working to get them out. I, I got two, I got, we got 23 Americans out last week, December 17th. We got 57 Americans out. Uh, and we're getting our allies out constantly, our allies, meaning those who served alongside of us, that we made a promise, a promise to, to get them out and their families. 
And, uh, and there's thousands and thousands of them. And outside of that, you know, there's 40 million people in Afghanistan are the victims uh, to the atrocities the Taliban will bring on them. Christians there, uh, we got in this 200 girls as Christians and the Christian girls in this group, vulnerable women. I mean, 40, uh, 20 million women there that are going to be now sexual, enslaved sexually as young as 11 years old to be raped mm. for, for a lifetime. So the atrocities are horrific. All I can say is, you know, you know, as a government, all you can do is contact your congressmen and senators and say, we're not okay with this. We need to do the right thing and put pressure on the White House to do the right thing. And to support NGOs, non-government organizations that are doing this, you know, Mighty Oaks Foundation, our foundation, kickstarted Save Our Allies, which is that nonprofit. And, you know, we're continuing to do this work. Lots of great organizations. I worked with uh, Glenn Beck uh, out of our, all of our flights. I know Glenn Beck at Nazarene Fund funded about $20 million of our flights. So wow. there's lots of great organizations doing great things. Ours to save our allies. And we actually were one of the ones that actually boots on the ground and had Americans on the ground rescuing people. And uh, we're not going to stop. I, I just wrote a, uh, I just, Thomas Nelson's who my publisher uh, that's doing Fight for Us, the marriage book that we have coming out February 15th, by the way, that you can pre-order your copy now. But they came to me right away as I was going to Afghanistan and said, hey, start documenting this because mm. we want to, we want to tell all of what's happening. And, uh, and they gave me eight weeks to do a manuscript. So I turned in a manuscript last week. So October 4th, uh, we're going to have that book coming out that's going to tell everything about the rescues in Afghanistan. It's you know really fast around for a book, but um, you know I think it's important the world knows because of the news cycle thing. It's important the world knows what happened there, so we don't continue to repeat repeat this again in the future. That national security relies on our friends and allies around the world. Yeah, Chad, thank you for taking the time. I know you're you're a busy guy, so thank you for taking the time to squeeze this Absolutely. in, man. It really has been an honor, and I'm just so grateful to get a chance to know you. Thank you. Yep, we'll be back on it anytime. Do it again. I'm so encouraged as I listen to Chad's story, mainly because it reminds me of how God is relentless in his pursuit of our hearts, even in the midst of our brokenness. He chases us down. And you hear that all throughout Chad's story, which is just really, really encouraging. If you enjoy this conversation and the other stuff that we do here at Dad Tired, we would love to have you support us, become a monthly partner with us. We want to equip guys all around the world to become the men God's calling them to be. And we need your help to do that. If you want to go to dadtire.com forward slash give, become a monthly partner. It helps us a ton. We're committed to equipping men all around the world to feel confident as the spiritual leaders of their home. And you can help us do that. Again, go to dadtire.com forward slash give. I love you guys. Hope this was encouraging. We'll see you next week.